If you haven't been here yet during the summer because of vacations and travels or whatever, or if you're a first-time guest with us today, we're in a series called The Summit. It's about mountaintops in the Bible and God moments on those mountaintops. And uh, I would suggest that you take some time to study the mountaintops and uh, find out how many mountains there are in the Bible and what lessons we can learn from them. By the way, how many mountains ranges can you mention here in the United States? Um, There aren't a lot of ranges. There are a lot of different mountain names as you go along, but you've got the Appalachians to the east. Probably our favorite part of that would be the Smokies. There's kind of a folk art charm about the Smoky Mountains. And then you go out west and you come to the Rockies. They are rugged and they are bold and they are majestic and they are awe-inspiring. But I, I, I want you to know I am not a mountain climber. I do not aspire to being a mountain climber. I do enjoy a bit of a challenge uh, here and there. Uh, when Elsie and I were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, we went zip lining, and that was pretty thrilling. I, I enjoyed that. But I'm not a mountain climber. When I go to the mountains, it's not for the thrill, it's for the refreshment. It's for the rest and the restoration. To me, there is nothing more awe-inspiring than standing at the foot, the base of a mountain range, and just looking at the majesty and the greatness and the, and the power of, of, of those mountain ranges. And and can I remind you that sometimes rest and refreshment is more important than the challenge and the thrill. It's interesting for me to note that uh, in California, it's home to both the highest point in the contiguous United States as well as the lowest point. Um, Mount Whitney rises 14,505 feet into the sky. Death Valley drops to 282 feet below sea level, and they are less than 100 miles apart. So you can go from the highs to the lows in a very short period of time. What's true of the state of California is also true of life. You can go from the highs to the lows in a very short period of time, and nobody in the Scripture understood that one better than Elijah. Now, the story we talked about last week of the contest on Mount Carmel is one of my favorites from 1 Kings. But the story, the second mountaintop experience that follows may even be more important for us to learn. And I am incredibly grateful that God chose to include this chapter of Elijah's life in his word when if we were writing our own autobiographies, we'd leave this chapter out. Let me remind you what has taken place thus far. Last week we talked about this mountaintop experience where he faced off against 450 prophets of Baal that was the culmination of three and a half years of stress and survival in a land dominated by drought and famine. And throughout these three and a half years, God has been preparing Elijah for the incredible moment when God would work through him to pull the people's hearts back to God again. He went up against the prophets of Baal. God answered his prayer with fire. All of the prophets, the false prophets, were put to death. The cancer was cut out of of the country there. The rain came as Elijah prayed, and Elijah surely reasoned thusly. When when this day was over, and he was so so pumped, he was having an adrenaline rush, he outran Ahab's chariot back to the city of Jezreel. I think he came back thinking this, all right, it worked. God answered with fire. He has proven once and for all that he alone is God. The people responded in worship. Uh, The the rain has come to refresh and restore the ground. Ahab and Jezebel are surely going to repent. There will be peace in the land. There will be a revival that comes to the land of Israel, and everything will be different. 
I think that's what he was thinking when he came down off the mountain. That didn't happen. Jezebel had not been to the mountaintop, but when the rain began to fall, she probably thought something different. She was to learn what did happen, and it changed her in ways Elijah was not expecting. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. In other words, if the gods kill me in the process, so be it, but I'm going to put you to death just as you put my prophets to death. Oh my goodness. Elijah was not prepared for that kind of a response. That was just the opposite of what he thought was going to happen. He never dreamed that his life would be threatened. And when it is by this wicked queen, he fled to the wilderness despondent and depressed. Verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Oh, say it ain't so, not Elijah. Yeah, Elijah. You mean this messenger of God that stood before King Ahab and said, Is it, it isn't going to rain until I say it's going to rain? Afraid? Yeah, that man. You mean the man that lived in the caves and was fed during part of this time by God via ravens dropping food for him? Terrified? Yeah, that same man. You mean the, prom, the, the prophet who promised the widow in Zarephath that the bowl of flour would never go empty and the jar of oil would never go dry and when the widow's son unexpectedly died, he raised her to life? That man terrified? Yeah, that man terrified. So much so that he ran for his life. Stood up against 450 angry prophets with knives. One wicked queen threatens him. And he's gone. He got as far away from his point of victory as he possibly could. <laughs> you ever felt that way? So frightened, disheartened, discouraged, or despondent that you saw no other option but to run? Like a fog that creeps in and settles in the lowlands and the valleys, the haze of depression has obscured your vision and confused your direction? You run to get away, but the fog never lifts. All of us have been there, I think, at one time or another, to one depth or another, for one period of time or another. Some of you are there right now. Others will arrive in this veil of depressive tears soon enough. For some, the journey is brief and not particularly devastating. For others, the journey can last for what seems forever and leave you as limp as a rag. Some days in life, you just don't want to deal with another problem. You don't want to see another person. You don't want to hear another complaint. You don't want to read any more bad news. There are days when I want to find an undiscovered cabin on the backside of an obscure mountain and just live there. Or I want to be the lighthouse keeper in a faraway lighthouse with a broken light. Do you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever been there? Have you felt like that? We all have periods like that. If you've never felt that way, if you've never had a day like that in your entire life, if you would make Pollyanna look like a pessimist, then you are free to leave right now. 
Because what happens with Elijah here, just, it just won't mean anything to you. But for the rest of us, this mountaintop, this mountaintop is like an oasis in the desert. Let's talk a little bit about the descent, first of all. Elijah comes down off this marvelous victory summit on Mount Carmel. You know, depression's frequency and disruption of normal life are staggering. Uh, the World Health Organization named depression the second most common cause of disability worldwide after cardiovascular disease. The second. And it is expected to become the number one reason for disability within the next 10 years. Minrith and Meyer have written a classic book entitled Happiness is a Choice. In their book, they reveal the following statistics. The majority of people suffer from depression at one time or another. One in 20 is presently suffering from depression. Depression is the leading cause of suicide. Depression occurs two times more often in women than it does in men. It occurs three times more often in the higher socioeconomic groups than the lower. Depression occurs most often in the fourth or the fifth decade of life, although it may occur during any stressful period. Now I want you to look at what we read in the text in chapter 19. In verse 3, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. Now, let me pause there for just a second. This is no small trip. It's 70 miles to Beersheba. Then he leaves his companion servant there, his student, and he goes off into the, the desert another day until he finds himself isolated in the wilderness. It says, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. In other words, this is it. I'm not doing this anymore. Take me out of here. I'm gone. I'm finished. Kaput. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. God never asked him to be better than his ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Now, it's obvious when you read this that Elijah is dealing with depression. But what in the world causes a man of this stature and faith to give up in defeat? Well, first of all, he was a mere human being. Really? I thought Bible characters and Bible heroes had an extra measure of oomph and spirituality, that they weren't like us. No, no. The book of James, chapter 5, verse 17 says, Elijah was a man just like us. If he could get discouraged, you could get discouraged. If we can get discouraged... He could get discouraged. He's just one of us. And that makes this so much more powerful. Let me tell you what was wrong with Elijah. He was physically exhausted, first of all. He was just completely worn out. He'd been a fugitive on the run, hiding for over three years. That day on Mount Carmel's summit was exhausting, after which there was an execution of all of the 450 prophets of Baal. And then he runs all the way back to the city of Jezreel. The next day, he takes off on a journey of 70 miles to Beersheba and then on from there. He was physically depleted, wiped out, exhausted. There is a Native American proverb that says, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. 
Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can ignore God's natural laws or somehow you are exempt from fatigue when you are physically exhausted. Some people think, well, I'm doing a good thing. I'm trying to live for God. I shouldn't be tired. Why not? You're a human being. You push the laws that God created from the beginning of time, you're going to reap the end result. And when you are physically exhausted, you are far more vulnerable to despair. Even Jesus got away to rest. Jesus would get away from the crowds, go up in the hills, and rest and pray. Second of all, he was emotionally exhausted. Hey, you know one of the problems of mountaintop experience is that you've only got a one place to go, or only one direction to go from there, which is down. <laughs> when you have a mountaintop moment, you can't, you can't stay on the mountaintop. You've got to go somewhere. Well, from the mountaintop, there's only one way, and that is down. Studies have been done that, that prove that after you have reached a goal that you've worked for for a long time, or maybe you've been dreaming about the vacation of a lifetime that you're going to take when you, you know, retire or whatever, and you plan for years for that, when the vacation is over, there is a letdown to it. A mother prepares nine months for the birth of a child and goes through all kinds of physiological as well as emotional and mental changes in that and oftentimes suffers from postpartum depression. You go through the Christmas holidays. Some people put so much time and energy in it that the day after Christmas is just a big letdown. I only want to know of one day in the week that has the color blue associated with it. Blue Mondays. Why blue Mondays? Because the weekend's over. I've got to wait another whole week. I'm back to work. There's something about when you reach for something, you strive for something, you plan for something, you achieve something, that there is a natural letdown. Every person has a limited supply of emotional energy. It needs to be replenished on a regular basis. Watch for the signs. When you see yourself getting crispy around the edges, you better make some changes before you reach burnout. And while I understand why Elijah wanted to be alone, too much aloneness when you're depressed is not good, which is why God gave us the kingdom, the church, the body of Christ. And when you feel least like coming, you need to be here the most. Because you may be saying, I don't want to be around people today. I don't want to, I don't want to go to all those happy people, all that singing. You get yourself here. Because you need it. Because when you are around an atmosphere of worship, it will help lift your spirits. Won't solve the problems, it will just help. He was mentally exhausted. Elijah felt like a failure. The queen was unconvinced. She should have bowed and worshiped before God. Instead, she vowed to kill the prophet of God. Elijah had no backup plan. There was no plan B. There was just God's plan A. Now, hear me say this. When God has a plan, you don't need a backup plan. But Elijah's thinking here, I failed. Somehow I have failed. It did not work. And failure and uncertainty are breeding grounds for depression. Daniel Gilbert, a psychology professor at Harvard University, suggests from his studies that a major cause, not the only cause, but a major cause of depression is uncertainty about tomorrow, the future. And the more things seem up in the air about the future, the more uncomfortable we become. People don't know what's going on, and that leads to depression. But I, I'm here to tell you, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. I've got it. There's enough problems today. You, you focus on today. I, I'll take care of tomorrow. You, you put my kingdom first, my righteousness first. I'll take care of tomorrow. And then he adds this. He said, you know, if, if a sparrow 
cannot fall from the sky without your heavenly Father's knowledge, why would you think he would not notice what's going on in your life? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow may be uncertain, but we know that it's in certain hands. Now, you hold on to that. And it will help if we would change our perspective about failure. We always think of failure in the negative as a bad thing, but, but it isn't. Thomas Edison filed an impressive 1,093 patents with the U.S. Patent Office. But behind those 1,093 patents were thousands of failures in the process of developing these things. For instance, when he and his staff were developing the incandescent light bulb, and he didn't invent the light bulb, it's just that nobody had been able to make it work. They knew the principles, and Edison went to work. At one point, he and his staff tested over 6,000 vegetation forms for filaments in the light bulb, over 6,000 without success. That doesn't count the metals and all the other things that they tested. But, but Edison was never daunted by, by failure. He always saw failure as a path to success. Near the end of his career, a former worker, Alfred Tate, penned the following in a letter to his former boss, Edison. And this is what he wrote. He said, above all you taught me not to be afraid of failure, that scars are sometimes as honorable as metals. Wow. What a, what a great way to look at failure in our life. That sometimes the scars of our life are as honorable as the metals of victory. And may I suggest to you that God is as much at work and sometimes maybe even more in the failures of your life than the successes of your life. And can I remind you of this this morning too, that when we are emotionally and mentally depleted, it may require some medication to help restore you. Your mind, your emotions, and your body are all integrally connected. And sometimes when changes happen in our life that change chemical balances in our body, the best thing you can do is go to your doctor and let your physician recommend professionally recommend some kind of medication to help you through that time. Sometimes we need help getting past these moments so that we can heal. And you say, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not spiritual. Where'd you read that? I, I don't find any place where it says that's not spiritual. Well, I should be able to handle this on my own. Who says? Would you take an antibiotic for an infection? Sure you would. Then if the doctor says this will help you, then take it under his or her direction. Because sometimes there are changes that we cannot control, but the medicine can help bring it back into balance. Fourthly, he was spiritually exhausted. Look at verse 10. When, when he was asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. <sighs> I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Did you ever play the role of the martyr? That's what Elijah is doing. Oh, God, I'm the only one you've got left. And he says it as if God would be in a heap of trouble without him. Have you, ever, have you ever acted that way? God, you're really lucky to have me. I'm here to tell you, God won't be in a heap of trouble without you, but you'll be in a heap of trouble without God. And, and what Elijah is doing here is he's just, he's feeling sorry for himself. He's playing the role of the martyr, and it has contributed to his spiritual exhaustion and depression. Well, after you come down from one mountaintop, you can get to the next. So the next summit 
God does something to change his life. Okay, let's, let's read together in verses 5 through 9. It says, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there at his head was a cake of baked bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him what are you doing here, Elijah? Here's what God did for Elijah in this time. First of all, he gave him rest and refreshment. Now, God had every right to nail Elijah's prophetic hide to the wall for what he had just done, but he didn't. Being our creator, he knew what Elijah needed most, and what he needed most at that point in time was rest and refreshment and restoration. He addressed, notice this, God addressed the physical needs first. God didn't start on the spiritual end of the equation. He started on the physical end of the equation. You need to know that when you are physically depleted, exhausted, and everything is out of sorts, you won't get well emotionally, mentally, or spiritually because you can't focus on anything else but the physical. So sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is rest and refresh and restore the body. But when we're depressed and discouraged, we need to be confronted too. I mean, you need to ask the tough questions, which God did. What are you doing here, Elijah? He's confronting, he's making Elijah deal with what he's doing. Our daughters could tell you that when, they, that when you grow up with a preacher for a dad, you can occasionally get a sermon when it's not Sunday. <laughs> pa parents tend to be pretty good about preaching to our kids. Matter of fact, we humans are good about preaching to everybody else. We, we're good about seeing everybody else's flaws uh, except our own, and we're good about preaching to everybody about their flaws. A man was stopped by the police around 2 a.m. and asked where he was headed at that time of night, to which the man said, well, sir, I am on my way to a lecture about the harmful effects of alcohol abuse on the human body. Really, said the officer. Who's giving a lecture at this time of night? That, sir, would be my wife, the man replied. <laughs> We humans are really good about preaching to one another. You know, I am so impressed. God, if anybody ever had the right to preach a sermon at this point in time, it was God to Elijah, but he didn't. He didn't. What Elijah needed was not a sermon. What he needed was the knowledge that God was still in control, that the plan had not failed, that God would take care of everything, and that God was still going to use Elijah, that Elijah hadn't failed. He needed that encouragement, and that's what we need to do. Sometimes we don't need to share a sermon. Sometimes we just need to build one another up. Verses 11 through 13, the Lord said, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by, Elijah. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? By the way, you know this mountain, this Mount Horeb, better by a different name. It is also Mount Sinai, Sinai, where God gave the law to Moses. It's where Moses spent 40 days up there receiving the law. I've often wondered, I, you know, we don't have any way of knowing, I've often wondered if the cave where Elijah was was the same cave perhaps where Moses had spent those 40 days. 
By the way, did you notice that Elijah spent 40 days getting to the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. Moses spent 40 days on the mountaintop. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. The number 40 is a, is a number of testing in the scriptures. When you see the number 40, four zero, then you know this is a period of testing. It was a period of testing for Elijah. And notice what happened. There was a great wind, there was a great earthquake, there was a great fire. By the way, those are the same three things that happened when the Israelites stood at the base of that mountain before they went into the wilderness when God gave them the Ten Commandments. There was a wind and there was an earthquake and there was fire on the mountaintop and then God spoke the Ten Commandments to his people and they were scared to death. This time there is a gentle whisper and you say, what, what, what was God doing? Okay, here's what I think God was communicating to Elijah. Elijah, I can work through any of these things. I can work through the wind. I can work through the earthquakes. I can work through fire. I can do the dramatic, but I would rather work through my word. I'm with you, Elijah. Trust me. Stay close to me. Stay focused on me, and you just keep telling the truth, my word, and I'll get you through. Can I suggest that that's a really good thing for you to remember? That in the tough times of your life, you just stay close to God, keep dependent upon him. Even when it feels like he may be far away, you keep leaning on him. You keep trusting in the truth of his word, that gentle whisper, and he'll get you through. And then God gives him a new direction. In verses 15 through 18, uh, and we won't take time to read those right now, but the Lord says, okay, here's your job. You go back and you're going to anoint two kings and you're going to anoint your own successor, a man by the name of Elisha, and he's going to be coming alongside of you. You're going to mentor him. You're not going to be alone uh, in this endeavor. And, and so he had a job to do. Nothing is more valuable when you are discouraged than becoming Focused on serving God by serving others. If you're hurting, find somebody else who is hurting and help them. And in helping them, you yourself will be encouraged. God reassures him, I'm going to take care of Ahab's house. You're going to appoint a new king. I'll, I'll take care of Ahab and Jezebel. Don't you worry about them. And I'm not finished with the nation of Israel yet either. You haven't failed. The plan is still working. Now go back and do your job. And, and then, this is, this is really neat, in verse 18, God says this. He says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, God said, oh, Elijah, by the way, you remember when you said, I am all alone. There is no one but me. Sorry, Elijah, I've got 7,000 just like you in Israel. Now, that was a reminder to Elijah that God didn't have to use him, that God was choosing to use him. And it was a great reminder, hey, I am not alone. When you know you're not alone, you can handle some things. As a matter of fact, that's one of the great things about the kingdom of God. When I come here on a Sunday morning and, and things have been tough through life and the week and maybe around the world, and I see you all here, I know I am not alone in what I believe. And that's so powerful and important. Let me close with a little poem. This is written by an unknown author, but a very wise one. When things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile, but you have to sigh, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint of the clouds of doubt. And you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems so far. So stick to the fight when you're hardest hit. It's when things seem worst 
that you must not quit. I don't care how bad the days get. We have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You stick close to him. Let his son, Jesus Christ, guide your life. He's got tomorrow covered. You just live today in the fullness of his truth, in his word. And don't you ever throw in the towel. Don't you ever give up. Don't you ever quit. And the only one that can help you do that is Jesus Christ.